Amen. So what we're doing is we are taking the Apostle Paul's proposition in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, very seriously. I want us to look at that again. This is what he said. He said, in relationship to my coming to you, you Corinthians, I came to you with speech that was not designed to be enticing and insight that wasn't based upon human wisdom. And then he gives the contrast. We talked about this twice. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, I came to you in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And what I said was, I think that this statement, this construction really merits careful analysis because so many times people are making assertions about the spirit of God that they cannot validate scripturally. And when they seek to do it, often it will run into contradictions in other areas of the scriptures as well. So what we're going to be doing is three things today in relationship to this proposition, demonstration of the spirit and of power. We're going to be affirming the fact that the third person acts in ways that are demonstrative. We're going to be affirming the fact that the third person, this is what we meant by the spirit of God, right? We're not talking about human spirits. We're talking about the third person, the spirit of the living God. There is God, the father, God, the son, and then God, what? The Holy Spirit. This is clearly explicitly laid out in the Bible. He is a uh, pro uh, generative agent along with the father and the son in creating the world in garnishing the heavens and sustaining its present existence. In fact, if it were not for the spirit of God, nothing would live. Everything abides because of the energia or the energy of the spirit of the living God. He said it in Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 102, if he takes his spirit away, we all wither and die. So there's a sense in which the third person is constantly upholding all human beings. And then there is that special relationship that we who are true believers have with the spirit of God, which Jesus said he would send, send when he rose again from the dead. But as I stated last time, too, when we're talking about the third person or the spirit of God, we're dealing with language that's really above our pay grade experientially, um, cognitively, rationally. We're actually simply submitting ourselves to proofs that have made themselves evident to some of us and yet not all of us. There are people in the world who do not believe that there is a God. That's not strange, bizarre, or even um, something to be disturbed about. This is a category of human experience that falls out under being sinners. When you and I are sinners by nature, as Isaiah 59 puts it, we are separated from God. We're separated from God so that on a spiritual level, on a transrational level, we cannot perceive him enough for us to affirm his existence. So a lot of your atheists are agnostics. Your atheist would say there is no God. Your agnostic would say, I don't know who God is. And sometimes Christians fit in both of those categories as well. And and I have said this to you guys before. It's okay to acknowledge and affirm the struggle that the atheist has. It's okay to acknowledge and affirm the struggle struggle that the agnostic has. Because the agnostic and the atheist 
are simply affirming what the Bible says when it says the things of God to the natural man are moronic. The things of God to the natural man are moronic. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians already. You and I dealt with that, but we'll be looking at that under point number three, the blindness of the perishing. The blindness of the perishing. We're not there yet. What we're doing is simply taking what scripture says around the spirit of the living God, his prophetic call into the church age, which began in Acts 2, as we looked at on Tuesday. And now we want to continue to accrue what is called legal proof or legal evidence. That's the term for demonstrative or demonstration of the spirit. When it says in Acts 2, 4, but demonstration of the spirit and of power, what Paul was saying is the spirit has the ability all by himself without any kind of human cajoling or human manifestation or human manipulation to show up in ways in which it would be undeniable for people to know that this is God working. I'll state that one more time. God knows how to show up in any person's life whenever he wants to, to let you know he's real. God knows how to do that. Now, when those of us who are Bible-believing Christians embrace Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what Scripture does is shows us how the Spirit of God shows up in intervals in very tangible, tactile, visceral, obvious ways. We see it recorded in Scripture. Those recordings in scripture become testimonies of the spirit. This is how we started when we were dealing with the coming of the spirit of God in Acts 2. You guys remember that. In Acts 2, in the opening of the chapter, I'm not going to go through all those passages in the book of Acts, but the Acts, the proxies, the book of Acts, I shared with you before. When you read the book of Acts, that is the English term A-C-T, right? Literally, it's the Greek word proxies, Proxies from which we get the term practice, practice. When a person has a profession, they engage in a what? Practice. And what the book of Acts is are the practices of the spirit of God working through the apostles and then later on through the church to do what the spirit of God was called to do. What is the role of the spirit of God in our world? The role of the spirit is to make Jesus a reality in the hearts of men and women. The role of the Holy Spirit is to affirm the claims that Jesus Christ is actually Lord. That's the role of the Spirit. I say that because if people ask you, so what's this big deal about the Spirit of God? Well, here's the big deal about the Spirit of God. Without the third person, the second person is not known in any saving way. When you meet men and women who are truly children of the living God, they are only enamored with Jesus because the Holy Spirit has revealed him to them. That is a fundamental work. This is uh, John chapter 16, verse 8. Um, So you can roll with me now as we're doing this. John 16, 8, Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth is come, right? When he, the spirit of truth is come, he will correct or convince. See the word reprove there? That word is adjacent to our word to demonstrate, to render proof, to reprove is to convince a man of the reality of Jesus. To reprove somebody is to show them where they were wrong and then set them right. The text says here, he will reprove the world of sin. What does that mean? He will show men and women that they are lawbreakers. That our fundamental problem in humanity is not like a sociological problem 
or an ethnic problem or in hierarchy of race, you know, tears and conflicts between people that our fundamental problem is spiritual and that it's sin. Now, everybody doesn't believe that. Like my agnostic friends and my atheistic friends, they don't even believe they're sinners. So while as yet you, you're not convinced that you're a sinner, you can never know Jesus as Savior because Jesus is revealed as Savior to sinners. The gospel is a sinner's gospel. And this is what will keep our atheistic and agnostic friends on the outside of the blessing of the gospel, because until the spirit of God convinces them that they are a sinner, they won't feel compelled to embrace the crises. That's a Greek term that means conviction. They won't embrace the crises that they need a savior. But you and I learned in Acts chapter two, as the Holy Spirit came down upon the folks at Pentecost, 120 in the upper room, and Peter began to explain what happened. You guys remember that? Peter explained that this that you're seeing, which we call a proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit, is that which Joel the prophet did say. So you'll notice now that what Peter did was explain to a crowd of both believers and unbelievers. I want you to get this because what we're doing is saying that there is there is an event that occurs by which the spirit of God shows up, proving that he is a reality both to the saved and the unsaved. You're going to have to be thinking very carefully as I'm talking. Otherwise, you'll miss the whole point of my discourse It's not to stir you up in a very religious way. It's to help you understand that when that third person appears in his demonstrative work, here's what he's doing. He's taking some people and bringing them into a deeper initiation and affirmation of the reality of Jesus. And he's leaving other people to wonder what in the world just happened. Okay, that's how the book of Acts opens up. Jesus, the second person said, tarry ye here until you be endued from on high with the spirit of God. Remember that they did what he said. And when the spirit came, he manifested himself in an abnormal. I'm going to be using the term abnormal again, abnormal metaphor of fire, cloven tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples. Right. And that became here's another word that's going to be critical to understanding the the the, uh, phenomena of the demonstration of the spirit that became a sign. I want you to write that down. That became a sign because we're going to deal with what I call three categories of the work of the spirit in the area of super, the supernatural and miracles. There are three categories you have to be able to understand and we'll make that work. So what happened in Acts 2 was they were in the upper room. The spirit of God filled them. There was a sound like a rushing wind. Was that not so? That was another sign. So you have a visual sign objectively an optical sign of cloven tongues on their heads. Then you hear the rushing of the wind. That's an, that's an audible sound. Now people are, um, they're confronted with a visual and an audio of the spirit. Does that make some sense? Right. And when you read the narrative, guess what? They act like something happened. Why? Because they began to inquire, what is this? So when we're reading the narrative of Scripture, notice what the narrative of Scripture is doing is broadening its testimony that the third person has come. Remember, Jesus said he's coming. Then he came. And when he came, he manifested himself demonstrably by visual tongues on the head and by a loud rushing wind. 
which drew these 17 nations in Acts 2. 17 nations, 17 Gentile nations where Jews were scattered abroad. They had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And now all of a sudden they are observing this phenomena that we call the demonstration of the spirit. You guys keeping up with me? So I'm laying this out to show you that the church was born at Pentecost under that principle that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Demonstration of the spirit and of power. And we watched how Peter explained to the Jews that what you are seeing take place is what Joel said would occur. That would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and one of the uh, what we call succeeding our coextensive signs, our manifestations that would occur. Joel said it, that they would start doing what? Seeing visions, having dreams, and what? Prophesying, right? That's what the text says. They would start prophesying dreams and visions and prophecy. These become other tokens of the demonstrative work of the spirit. Put those down because you're going to see this play itself out throughout the book of Acts. So as we are walking through a linear development of the history from Acts 2 to Acts 3 to Acts 4, guess what you're seeing? You're seeing a demonstration of the spirit in the sign miracles, because the other sign that we saw uh, in Acts chapter three was the healing of the lame man at the temple gate. You guys remember that? It was a notable miracle. This is what we mean by demonstrative. It was a notable miracle. Like it wasn't the kind of alleged miracle that some of our con artists talk about occurring in communities where no one really sees anything. And this is the part that I want to overcome tonight as we're working with the language. You and I never want to bear false witness to God. We never want to say something about God that we cannot substantiate as being true. Does that make some sense? If we don't know, we just don't know. We're not God. God can defend himself. What we don't want to do is lie about something that does does not correspond with the testimony of Scripture And in addition to that, something we have not been able to affirm ourselves. What we can do is affirm that scripture teaches this thing called a demonstration of the spirit. Remember, I told you that's a legal term bringing into the courtroom all the necessary evidence to affirm the claim. If you've got somebody that's on a stand that is seeking to defend themselves, what will be required in the court is evidence that your claim is valid. So when we talk about the third person, we have to be able to demonstrate that the claims are valid. And what Paul did, Paul said was the spirit of God did exactly what he said he would do when we began preaching. We began preaching and things began to happen. We didn't make it happen. It just began to happen. There's a constituent relationship between the presence and work of the spirit of God and the preaching of the gospel. We already established that, right? That's the heart of Paul's exhortation in, in Romans in first Corinthians two. We'll get back there. I want to show you, however, why this is so critical to the establishment of the gospel in the first century and then the categories thereof. So we saw a healing in Acts chapter three. Then we saw a judgment in Acts chapter six, where the apostle Peter caught Ananias and Sapphira lying. Do you guys remember that? 
Go, go to Acts 6 for a moment. I'm going to show you what I mean. And, and again, here, the panuma is going to be in this text, is he not? And in fact, what Peter is going to say, you lie to the spirit. First, for Acts chapter 6, 1. In those days when the number of the... Dis- Uh, Acts chapter five. Um, yeah, we're moving on to the disciples. Acts chapter five. <laughs> Thanks, Bo. Acts five, please. Five, one, maybe. There it is. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, verse two, and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it or aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet. This if you were to read chapter four, this is a ongoing narrative, right? This is an ongoing story. In chapter four, the church is so infused by the spirit of God and so in love with Christ and so committed to one another. The text says, and they all had all things in common and they were sharing life with a kind of equanimity and love where no one was fighting. No one was arguing. No one was complaining. Everybody was sharing. We would call that the fullness of the agape. The fullness of the agape is when the spirit of God is working in your life. And God has poured in his love. And whenever he pours in his love, he fills you up. And that filling up allows you to give freely in a hilarious way without you feeling like you're losing something. Because the trade-off for the presence of the Spirit of God is unequal. A man or a woman that is so full of the Spirit of God will give up everything that they have. Because there's no, com- there's no comparison between having God and having things. Okay, I just want you to capture that. I I want you to capture. So in Acts chapter, we've said this before in theology for years. The best days of the church were Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then it started going downhill after that. But I'll tell you why as we get down the line. So we're going to be dealing with three categories. We're going to affirm the demonstrative work of the Spirit. We're going to affirm it. Then we're going to categorize it because it has to be categorized. And then thirdly, we are going to um, we are going to warn, bring a warning about a this is called a reputation of a pseudo spirit that always seeks to take the place of the true spirit of God. So we're going to affirm the spirit of God. We're not going to say that he doesn't heal. We're not going to say that he doesn't do miracles. We're not going to say that he doesn't act supernaturally. We are. But we're going to also categorize that. We're going to categorize it and then we're going to warn. That's going to help you build a story yourself, a narrative yourself when you talk to people about how how he works. And so here in Acts chapter five, verse three, notice what happens. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the what? So, I, I, you know, just to do a little theology here, this is not hard to capture. Peter is talking about two unseen entities, is he not? The first is who? Satan. Like we really believe in a maniacal antichrist spirit called Satan, do we not? Right. And and this becomes part of a biblical worldview that's essential to understanding why our world is as crazy as it is right now. Like you cannot fundamentally um, assert or attribute to the craziness in our world mere psychological abnormalities or anomalies. It's not just people that people are crazy, but rather people are manipulated and controlled demonically. Please know that. So so when we're dealing with the spirit of God in his ontological nature, non-corporeal nature, 
We're also acknowledging, as I taught you several months back, there are fallen angels. There are good angels and fallen angels. And once we peer into that dimension, we're peering into the conflict in the heavenlies, are we not? Now we're talking about spiritual what? Warfare. So what Peter does here is really a phenomenal thing because Peter is another brother just like you and me. Now, of course, Peter was the one that God used along with John to see to it that that lame man was healed. That was a notable miracle. And that was that must have been just a blast for Peter. Right. Because what I'm going to teach you and I'll just drop it on you now while your attention is grasped. Miracles are not normative. That, that's our refutation. That's my second category. The category of miracles and signs is that they don't happen every day. They're not part of the Norman, nomenclature of human experiences. If they were, they wouldn't be miracles. Let me help you. So when you talk about a miracle here, a miracle there, a miracle here, a miracle there, you're wrong. That's not good language. Miracles are always inexplicable phenomena that only occur as an obvious intervention setting aside or altering the normal laws of physics. There are normal laws of physics that run our life. Our world operates out of a cycle of the first and second and third laws of, of, uh, of thermodynamics, right? We are atrophying. We are in entropy. We are waxing old and dying, are we not? We are getting sick. That's the consequence of what? sin. So what will happen every now and then is the Holy Spirit will decide to take this negative sequencing on a sociological level and arrest it and enter in and do what we call a miracle. For us, a miracle is a, this is a, um, this is a kind of um, phrasing that admits we don't have an actual understanding of the mechanism that occurred. We use the term miracle. Uh, it's like really using the term the flu. That's the closest thing that comes up right now. Every doctor knows influenza is a generic term that really cannot describe specifically what's happening. We use the word cold. I call it a what? A cold. That's a generic term. That doesn't get into the specific categories of what we're dealing with with that particular virus and how it impacts us. It's generic. So it's the same thing with um, the idea of miracles. That was a miracle. So when you use that term miracle, you can either be very loose, generic and nonspecific. And we'll kind of get what you mean. Because, you know, there are people who use that term for things like, you know, I got my paycheck on time. That's not a miracle. I know it feels like a miracle, but that's not a miracle. You see what I'm getting? Right. I mean, so we'll use it because really what we're saying is something happened in our favor that we didn't expect. But that's not technically what a miracle is. But but we get it right. It's a miracle that, you know, you finally listen to me. That's how wives are thinking about their husbands. OK. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price? So what Peter is saying is somewhere in the conscious um, narrative of, of Ananias and Sapphira, because they're, they're telling stories, aren't they? Isn't this, this what we're learning? We're all telling stories. And there was a husband and wife whose stories collaborated, collaborated around lying to God. Now, we wouldn't recommend that, would we? 
But we can easily do that when we're not grounded in the reality of who God is. And if we were to probe a little deeper into the idea of lying to God, it would go something like this, since I have you for the next hour and a half. It would go something like this. It would go like you and I are wrestling through choices. And those choices are difficult choices. And we have either the temptation to collapse into wrongdoing or the trial of seeking God to help us do it right. Did that come home? That's called a trial. Remember what I told you? Trials draw you closer to God. Temptations draw you away from God. In some cases around a particular temptation, you will be wrestling with the spirit of God telling you the right thing to do. Now, he's not always telling you what to do. Sometimes you and I are aloof enough that where we are engaging and struggling and wrestling with ideas, we're not even cognizant of the voice of God. You know that's true. This is a mystery of 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 uh, proximity vacillation between us and God. Some days we're closer to God than other days. It's true. Now, that's a metaphor. Again, it's analogous to how conscious we are and submissive we are to the reality of God. Some days we're not that conscious and some days we're not that submissive. This is what sin is about. And so on this occasion, what Peter teaches us, and he's operating out of another gift. When we get there in 1 Corinthians 12, it's called the gift of knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 12, we have nine gifts. And, and, and several of those gifts are around the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation, the gift of knowledge, and the gift of wisdom. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there, because these are gifts of the Spirit. Obviously, Peter is, uh, he's in the intel with the Holy Spirit here about Ananias and Sapphira. Is that right? Obviously, the Holy Ghost has came up to Peter and said, here, let me give you the scoop. Because otherwise, Peter is simply talking arbitrarily off of his own mouth and head. And he's just kind of rolling the dice about something that was unprovoked. There would be no reason for Peter to even inquire about it since all he did was come and lay the money at his feet. But see what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit not only warned Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira about this this evil collaboration that they're engaging in, he warned them and they did it anyway. And they came up with a, a nice uh, a cozy lie about the disproportionate sacrifice they would give when they gave the gift, which means they lied to God. Now, you and I can lie to God. Please know that you can lie to God. And even that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right. So they did it. And when they came to the apostles, Peter was given intel by the spirit of God, too, wasn't he? And this is why Peter could raise the question. Now, this is how this works. I don't know why I'm doing it, but maybe there's something going on among us for which I'm I'm doing this. But Peter is being given intel by the spirit and he's compelled by the spirit to confront two people who are supposed to be members of the church. These two people in private have lied to God. Now God is going to take that which they did in private and openly expose it. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen? Right. That which is done in secret will be made known abroad. And in this case, this is what happened. So notice what it says in verse four. 
I want to walk this through and keep going because I only have a few more examples before we move into something more specific. Now, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Um, That is the property. It's yours. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Now, there you go. That particular clause there justifies why we are contemplating right now in our marriage series how important narratives are, how important storytelling is. Because you and I wrestle with telling stories. We particularly wrestle with telling stories about ourselves. So for those that are listening, when young people are talking about coming together in some kind of relationship, you ain't got to be young. When two people are talking about coming together in relationships, the thing that I'm asking, if you guys are tracking with me in these questionnaires that I'm giving you, do you know yourself? Do you know yourself? Because if you don't know yourself, you don't know who you are giving to that other person. Did that make some sense? Right. So to me, the highest priority in preparation for marriage is you having a confident understanding of the fundamental attributes and characteristics of yourself so that you are certain that when you are given the privilege of joining someone in holy matrimony, they're getting the truth. Because you're giving them the truth. Does that make sense? Uh, You don't have to know the whole truth about yourself. Life is a journey. But when you're talking about when you're talking about entering in and coupling at the covenant level with somebody else, both of y'all telling stories. Y'all both telling stories. And the whole point is to bring our stories together and subsume them under the story of God. Is that what we're talking about? Right. So that our stories can over time grow collaboratively and grow integrally. What I mean by that is that if the spirit of God is in it, he will help the man and help the woman start telling more truth about themselves, each other and about God. See, so some of y'all getting part of the message tomorrow. Right. Can you imagine that 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 the central piece of that what we call Venn diagram? Can you can you imagine the absence of God? with two people that's struggling to keep it real. That's Ananias and Sapphira. They struggled to keep it real. Say amen if y'all understood what I just said. Right, they struggled to keep it real and then they thought it's okay to lie. And we're gonna ride this lie out. Well, no, no, not, not this time you're not. And so here's what happens, which is really important. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto who? Right. It's really powerful because first their struggle was with their conscience in the presence of God in secret. Then their struggle was in their conscience in the presence of the people of God in public, i.e. the apostle. See, now right there, they should have had what I share with people in council. I guess I got to do this. What I share with people in council is when you are struggling through something, learn the integrity of being able to pause your voice. Pause your speech, the stuff that's going on in your head. Give yourself a lag time before responding to any proposition. Exercise the integrity of just putting it on pause. Did that come home? Right. Because a lot of times you'll be challenged with a proposition or an idea or a mandate or anything, even on a stupid level. And if you don't have the, in, in, the discipline, that's the term I'm using right now, the discipline to go, let me think about that inside myself. Out of a knee-jerk reaction, 
out of all kinds of human foibles, you'll say things in order to get along and you'll know it's not true. You'll know it's not true. Now, the Holy Spirit is checking you in that situation. You're not dealing with the apostles. You're not lying to the church. In this case, they were dealing with the apostles and they were lying to to the church and they were lying to God. And it was God's judgment that they couldn't live. So the next thing that happens is verse five. In Acts five, verse five. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That might have that must have been a very powerful event that occurred for him at that moment. For him to be talking with Peter, the apostle. And for him to have collaborated in a a fabrication of reality that didn't correspond with the facts. For him and his wife to perpetrate a fraud on the whole church. And for him to be arrested right there in that moment. And having what must have been an eternity to repent. Does that make some sense? And not do it. That must have been a powerful internal struggle on his part. I could not imagine him not struggling. John, because he died. So when we consider the psycho, neurological, and physiological implications of the stress that was on him at that moment to tell the truth, and he couldn't. And it resulted in him having a heart attack. That's a powerful consideration, is it not? Right. If you're a child of God in here, you know occasions wherein you found it enormously difficult to tell the truth. Right. And, and, it, and, it, and it broke you. If you're a child of God, it's going to break you because that's not natural to a child of God. You go away knowing that you came dangerously close to executing the exhibition of being a son of perdition. Right. Dangerously close to being a devil. Well, that's what Judas Iscariot did. He's a straight up devil. The rulers were devils. When you're unsaved, you can lie easily. When you're saved, you cannot lie easy. And when you get to a place where your lying is pathological, you are a miserable Christian. Did you hear me? You are a miserable Christian because now you are operating out of a kind of trap of hypocrisy. That's not who you are. Children of God are children who speak the truth in love. As a normative pattern, we're, we're happy when we tell the truth. We're not happy when we don't tell the truth. Am I, am I speaking correctly? That's an internal evidence of the spirit of God. All right, so Ananias hearing the words fell down, gave up the ghost and great fear came on all them that heard those things. Do you get that? See, now the Holy Ghost is working mightily and vital on everybody else. Just because they heard how this brother lied and then he died. Everybody else is getting a grip, right? That was the purpose for the spirit of God working through the apostle to actually execute judgment to purify the church at once. This is the power that was given apostolically. 
the apostles had that capacity to execute judgment on the church because they had become the pillar and foundation with Jesus of the church. They were the foundation. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. They had the authority to execute judgment. This is something that Paul will make more fully clear in the book of first and second Corinthians. Do you wish that I come to you with a sword? Or in love? Now, when the apostle says with a sword, ladies and gentlemen, that's capital punishment. Do you understand that? That's capital punishment. This is why we say we don't have apostles today. People don't have the power to kill you and people don't have the power to raise you from the dead. No apostles today. Because you see, the apostles not only had this kind of judiciary judgment power, but this same Peter will be raising Dorcas from the dead in a minute. The Lord will be using them. Does that make sense? These are called signs of the what? The apostles. So this is exactly one. Now, I want to move on to something that's a little bit more um, hopeful. Go to Acts chapter nine with me. Let me show you another one. Acts chapter nine. In Acts chapter nine, this is an event. Now, we've had a couple others that have happened between uh, Acts chapter five and nine where the Holy Spirit has done some things. But I just want you to see this one because this one is going to overlay right on top of the kerygma, the event of preaching. This is where the apostle Peter is going to be um, demonstrating a work. I'm in Acts chapter nine, verse 10. Are you there? This is going to be Acts nine ten. I want you to hear what happens. Now, Peter became very hungry and he would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a what? Trance. So the, the language there means that Peter is getting ready to be set up for another demonstration of the spirit in the area of what? Visions. Visions. Remember when the Holy Spirit comes, your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Y'all got that? Right. So a trance is a requisite state of being that's going to move you into a vision status. Peter is about to see a vision. Because that is going to be a component of the presence of the Spirit of God in advancing the gospel. I'm, I'm helping you. Watch this. And he became hungry and he would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Verse 11. And he saw heaven opened. See it? Now, this is Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts are the practices of the Holy Ghost. Didn't I say that? So the heavens have already been opened before two chapters earlier, have they not? Stephen, we left off with him last time standing before the council and him being so full of the Holy Ghost, he looked like an angel. You guys remember that. And remember what happened to him? He was able to be fortified by the spirit of Christ while he is yet being stoned. He's praying for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The heavens are open and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Remember, I told you the role of the Holy Ghost is to make Christ a reality to you. And we need Christ to be a reality, particularly when we're suffering for his namesake. That's the work of the third person. You got that? Here we go again. Peter now is about to enter into another apostolic privilege around the presence of the spirit. He saw heaven open and certain a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. I love this vision. It's a sheet with all kind of uh, goods in it. Look at verse 12. I'm going to walk this through. Wherein were all manner 
of four footed beasts of the earth and a wild beast and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. What is God doing by his spirit in Peter's life? He's opening Peter up to a broader revelation of what God is doing in the world. Peter is a Jew who operates out of a fastidious diet of certain kinds of foods because he's used to the Old Testament strictures of the dietary laws. He's so kosher that he would never of his own enter into a Gentile's home. The distinction between Jews and Gentiles was so radical. Even Peter being truly born again has not yet had that kind of uh, epiphany and broadening of the categories of his freedom to engage with Gentiles with the privilege of being able to share the gospel with them. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? This would be fundamentally like growing up in a church that's filled with all kind of legalistic uh, principles and characteristics. And even though you come to know grace more fully, you still have these real difficult times with, you know, whether or not you're going to wear pantsuit to church for ladies or, you know, is it all right for a man to wear a powder blue tie? Because in some of our legalistic churches, I can tell you for the for the truth of it, they don't want you wearing pink. Um, I don't know what Bible verse they're using, but a brother couldn't wear pink and you couldn't wear, you know, these kind of gayish colors. They thought that that was problematic. Nothing in the Bible ever gave us those kind of strict categories of distinction. Does that make some sense? But we can impose them upon ourselves. And at that point, we're not operating at, at the broader levels of the grace of God. What Peter is getting ready to get taught is the gospel is not only to the Jew, the gospel is to the Gentiles as well. But the metaphor is going to be Peter, rise, slay, and eat. Peter, rise, slay, and eat. Now, if it would have been me, thank you, Lord, I would have just been straight at it. But I'm a Gentile. I'm a heathen. I'm a goyim, okay? But Peter got to work through this. Look at verse 13. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this brother's saying no to God. That's okay. He's he's in a uh, sleep state. He's in a trance. God's going to forgive him for this. But what this is teaching you and me is how easy it is for us to get trapped in our normalcy biases. Even when God tells us that the broader the parameters are broader for you to operate in, you and I can still operate in very narrow parameters. And those narrow parameters are comfortable for us. But they're too narrow for God to be glorified in the way in which God wants to be glorified. Did that make some sense? So everything cannot be about our comfort. This also would map on to my issue with us about how we do marriage. Because in marriages, for those of you who are wanting to move into a relationship with somebody, your relationship is going to necessarily be progressive in the discovery process of who you are and who they are and who you both are to each other. And if you don't have a set of strategies for dealing with who you are becoming in the progressive unfolding of who you are in the moment and in the future, You can find yourself struggling with wanting to be honest both with yourself and with your spouse. Did that come home? Right. I mean, Peter wasn't even willing to enter into a collaboration with his Lord here. See, the Lord Jesus has a story, doesn't he? 
And he wants to bring his bride into that story, which is represented by Peter. And Peter, no, 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 not so, Lord. That, that looks like an argument between a husband and a wife, doesn't it? Am I making some sense? Right. And, and God expects that. Verse, verse, verse 15. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time. What God has cleansed, that call thou that not common. Call common. Do not call that. Call not thou that common. This is God reproving Peter and telling Peter, God has cleansed everything you saw in that vision. In other words, God has cleansed the Gentiles. The Gentiles now can come into the faith. And they're going to come into the faith by you, Jew, bringing Jesus to them. And the the metaphor here is also rich. You, You know, I love food. And the nature of the gospel is a meal that we have together around the person of Christ so that the person of Christ becomes our mutual satisfaction, our koinea, our fellowship, our meat and our drink. Is that true? And that was the highest form of honor and respect in those cultures back in that day. And, and what I love about our past culture in, in America, even though we're losing it quickly, is that in the South, you could not go to someone's home where they did not feed you. And if you didn't eat it, that was a dishonor. And, and I know that still to be true in our eclectic community here at Grace. One of the things I loved about Grace when we were smaller many, many years ago, that means we were only operating out of one or two ethnic groups. And that became a little challenge. But as other ethnic groups came in, my Filipino brothers, my Asian brethren, my Latin brethren, as they came in, my Indian brother, as they came in, they came bringing in their cultural um, uh, decorum and protocol. And mostly it was one of these things where when they had strangers coming to their space, they always fed them like many of us growing up in the South. That's how we did it. But if you take the South and I'll get back, the South is really an extraction from all of these cultures around the world because they came from around the world, landed in the South. And what they brought with them with them is what they know is the best way to begin to develop a relationship with people and be anti xenophobic. You overcome xenophobia by saying, would you have a meal with me? Am I making some sense? All right. So this is what this is what God is teaching Peter. Peter, you got to get over your discriminatory thinking. You got to get over your hype that as a Jew, you're superior to a Gentile. And so now notice what it goes on to do. Verse 16. This was done how many times? So that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be what? So for Peter, the spirit of God did this. He will acknowledge that the spirit of God did this. This was not normal. This is what I meant about miracles and supernatural. We would put this in the category of the supernatural. So supernatural things that happen in the dimension of the phenomena that, you know, has occurred, but it doesn't take on the same kind of visible optical manifestation that a miracle does. Did that make some sense? Miracles will be the hand is withered, it gets healed, and everybody sees that hand extend and come to full health. The legs are lame, and everyone sees that person get up and walk, right? A supernatural event will be something where it's internal or unseen, where God heals you, intervenes there, like illumination of the mind is a supernatural work. I can tell you that. What it means to be born again is supernatural, 
A man or woman that is not born again cannot comprehend the supernatural work of regeneration. It's not visibly comprehended. Did that make some sense? All right. So this was done thrice and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Verse 17. I want to move on now. While Peter doubted in himself what this vision meant. Now, that's our word there too. Dio cronizzo. It's the idea of him judging him, weighing it out. See what he's doing? He's wrestling with what this means. I have to put that caveat there because you and I will automatically think doubting means to not agree with God. That's not what it means. It means that he's wrestling with the process of understanding that vision in the way that God meant it. He's wrestling with coming up out of his normalcy bias. Did that come home? Right. A person has a normalcy bias. You're being told you, you got to put that away. You know you have to, but it doesn't mean you don't wrestle with it. Because you're now trying to cognitively rationalize why a transition is taking place. And that's what Peter is doing. Now watch what happens. Now while Peter doubted in himself what the vision meant, which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So do you guys see providence working? Peter has just taken a nap. He's received the heavens open. The Holy Ghost gave him a metaphor of the enlarging of the ministry of the gospel. Remember, that's God's story. That is not Peter's story. Peter's married to Christ. And what Peter has to do now is become subservient under Christ because Christ has other sheep, have I, that are not of this fold. They must be brought into. And while Peter is receiving a vision from heaven, the Holy Ghost has already spoken to Cornelius. An angel has already told Cornelius, go get Peter. Peter's going to be the one. I gave him the keys to the kingdom. Right. So we get to see all this going on at the same time. Is God good or what? And that's how God works in our world. Right. You and I get to see the big picture of these events, but they have their own individual categories. Like like Cornelius has his own story. Peter has his own story. The brothers that are hanging out with Peter have their own story. The brothers that are hanging out with Cornelius have their own story. They get ready to eat together in the same house and something powerful is about to occur. All because they're both submitting to the invisible God. They're both submitting. Their stories are coming together, are they not? Right. When humanly speaking, it wouldn't have happened. Because of the middle wall of partition that divided Jew and Gentile. So here we go. Um, verse 18. And he called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. Verse 19. Let's walk it through. While Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, behold, three men seek you. So now notice what happened. The spirit of God gave him clarity on the vision that he saw. Now the spirit of God is speaking to him particularly about what the spirit of God was doing over there. So now the narratives are coming together by the supervision of the spirit of God. Peter, they're here. What I just showed you is about to come to pass. You're going to have now a physical manifestation of that vision that was metaphorical in nature. The vision came first. Now the revelation of the vision is about to unpack. Behold, three men seek you. Verse 20. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have what? 
So Peter will tell you back in Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 32, that the Holy, Holy Spirit is given to everyone that obeys him. And the Holy Spirit, which is given to everyone that obeys him. Acts 5.32, I just want to pull that up. There it is. And we are his witnesses. We're the apostles Christ's witnesses. And so is who? Is the Holy Ghost a witness to Christ? Whom God hath given to them that do what? The reason he gives us the Holy Spirit is in order that we might obey him. Obedience comes from yielding to the spirit who graces you to walk in the spirit. Got that? So that's what Peter is doing now, right? If the Holy Spirit hadn't given him that vision, if the Holy Spirit hadn't brought those three men, if the Holy Spirit hadn't spoken into Peter, Peter, do what I tell you. All right, Peter wouldn't have done it. There would have been no reason to do it. There would have been no reason to do it. So now go with me to Acts chapter 10. I want you to see the advanced story because this is going to bring me to the point that I want to make before we go on. We're going to start at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is not a respecter of what? Is that what Peter said? So you know what Peter has done? By virtue of a vision he just had a few hours earlier, which impacted his understanding, that vision then being confirmed by the audible voice of the Spirit of God and the presence of these men. Peter is now moving in this vision, is he not? This vision has brought Peter into an event. He's walking with them to Cornelius's house. He's being transformed as he walks. You know he is. Jews don't go into Gentiles' homes. Peter is submitting. This is what we call counterintuitive obedience, by the way. Counterintuitive obedience. What is counterintuitive obedience? It's the obedience that, that proceeds from you when a grander or higher state uh, authority is compelling you beyond your impulse to want to protect yourself. To be counterintuitive is when you are doing it for other reasons than your own self-preservation. As a fundamental rule, you and I operate out of self-preservation as a knee-jerk reaction. Would you agree with that? Right. And then that, that bias will often be the law by which we determine whether or not God's speaking to us. In other words, we, we believe God speaks to us when it agrees with us. I think the Lord is speaking to me, Pastor. Okay, what, what is he telling you to do? He's telling me to find a way to um, earn some money. Okay, how? Well, I can't tell you that because it's not legal. I, I'm using a crass analogy, but I'm speaking a truth. Many times I have watched how Christians will manipulate what they would consider the will of God when what's really driving them is their own impulse to get something done. Did that make some sense? Right. This is the difference between submission to a very clear and explicit guidance and seduction. Seduction. OK, it's very important. You and I, you and I seduce ourselves all the time. We will we will fabricate a grounds for which we will do what we want to do. And then we will just simply say, God agrees with me like God exists to agree with me. Like the only reason God exists is to agree with me. No, you exist to agree with God. That's really how that goes. 
And uh, and God doesn't care whether you like it or not. When God says obey, he means for you to obey and he'll give you the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost will help you obey. And sometimes the Holy Ghost will give you so much grace that your intuition is in it. But sometimes your intuition is not in it. It doesn't matter. You still got to do what's right. Did that come home? You're, you're gonna, you, that's going to be like 50 to 60 percent of your walk. OK, I'll, I'll, par- I'll put a parenthetical on that. The times in which God is telling you to do something that don't naturally correspond with your, your, your inclination to do it is the time when God is growing you. The time when God is telling you to do something and it doesn't naturally flow into the continuity of your predisposition to do that thing is when God is growing you. You're not growing when all every time God tells you to do something, you're simply doing that which you're already predisposed to do anyway. That's not growth. That's a normalcy pattern of, of that level you're already at. You and I know growth always requires a kind of resistance, a kind of opposition, a kind of having to press through and get beyond. That's where growth comes. All right, that's, that's, a, that's a benefit. You better get a hold to it. Then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Let's keep walking through. I want you to see this. So Peter has now acquiesced to the fact he's in a place where if he had to tell his Jewish brethren back down in Jerusalem or Capernaum or wherever he came from, um, he wouldn't tell them that he's hanging out with Jews, with Gentiles. He wouldn't tell them. But he's got to tell these Gentiles, God just taught me that he's no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Beautiful. Verse 36. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of what? Now, what has Peter done as he has submitted to God and has been brought into the presence of these Gentiles? His mouth is opening and now he is narrowing his discourse down to the preaching of Jesus. He's preaching Christ, is he not? He's preaching Christ. And here's what he does. He says, Jesus is Lord of all. That's huge. Because Christians today don't believe that. Christians don't believe Jesus is Lord of everybody. Is Jesus Lord of uh, President Biden? Is he Lord of the DOD, the DOJ? the NIH, the CDC, and every institution on the planet? We don't act like it, though. We certainly didn't act like it for several years, did we? You see how Christians talk about Jesus being Lord? I love Peter because Peter Peter is a straight-up Jew. He'll kill people for his Jewishness. Y'all know that. But, But God is changing his heart right in front of our eyes, isn't he? right in front of our eyes. And, and his submission to that is going to be rewarded immeasurably here in a moment to affirm to us that when we obey God, God will demonstrate his presence and power in his life if, as he chooses to. And it's not that God is obligated. It's just that God frequently works with his people when they avail themselves to do the right thing. Here it is. Verse 37. Let's keep going. Verse 37 That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. He's beginning with the baptism of John, isn't he? This is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, isn't it? Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the, here's our term, what? 
In other words, what Peter is about to do is say that what he witnessed when he hung out with Jesus was the demonstration and power of the spirit of God. Did that come home? What Peter is about to say is we saw how God worked through Jesus in the same way Paul is talking about it. Right. And in the same way that Peter is experiencing it. Watch this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with what? I love that. So he anoints Christ. This is called the messianic blessing. This is Matthew three. You guys remember that, right? His baptism and how the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove and remained on him. And Jesus, the anointed, went about doing ministry. The Holy Ghost and power dunamis. The dunamis is the energy. It is the driver behind the miracles and the signs and the manifestations that Jesus engaged in as he did ministry, as are the apostles doing now, who went about doing good and doing what? Healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. There it is. Now, as we're talking about a demonstration and proof of the spirit's work in affirming the reality of Christ, we're really talking about Messiah. That's the term in the, in the, in the Hebrew, Mashiach, Mashah, the anointing. Masah is the anointing. That anointing is God working through Messiah to bring about a gathering of men and women under Jehovah in their crisis, in their difficulties, in their illnesses, in their sicknesses, catching them right where they are and elevating them up out of those things and including oppression of the devil. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. I am reminding you now that what Peter is doing is preaching the gospel. You must. This is the classical, critical, textual proposition of the gospel. Jesus assumed a human nature. Jesus lived to be some 30 odd years old. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Ghost. Jesus went about doing ministry. Jesus healed. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He proclaimed his father's glory. Jesus hung on a cross and died for our sins. Is that the gospel? That's exactly the gospel. Now, let me also say a little caveat before I go on. The gospel is not a myth. It's a historical narrative about a real person who has been testified by many people to have done these things. Y'all got that? It's important to remember that because all Peter is doing, as are all the apostles, is bearing record to things they saw and heard themselves. That's what qualified them to be the apostles. Verse uh, verse 40. Him God raised up the third day and showed him what? Openly. This is right. Jesus rose again from the dead and he was seen above 500 brethren for 40 days. He just went about affirming that he had risen from the dead physically. We know those evidences, don't we? We know he ate with the apostles at the shore of Galilee. We know he went into the city and proved himself over and over again. He did things to affirm that he was physically alive. Men and women saw him constantly in fellowship with him. That's the testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. That more than 500 brethren saw the risen Lord. Now those 500 brethren, men and women, are witnesses, are they not? Of the resurrected Christ. That's how church history is established. Notice what it says in verse 41. Here it is. Not to all the people, 
but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him. Here it is. After he rose from the dead, they ate and drank with him. What are we talking about? The affirmation of the post-resurrection of his incarnation, his physical body. In other words, what they're saying is what Jesus did was furnish them with continual proof that they were not dealing with a phantom or a mythos or some kind of some kind of fabricated story. Does that make sense? This is why when he went into the upper room, he says, fellow, what you tripping on? Come here. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Reach, touch, feel and be no longer unbelieving. Right. This is what we mean by demonstrative proof. Demonstrative proof. Verse 42. Notice this. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This is why we mean that Jesus is curious. He's Lord. I don't want to go down that pathway, but I tried to demonstrate that for the last three and a half years. As we walk through a society that is becoming so tyrannical and so top heavy with its own assertion that it knows how to lead the world into some kind of utopic state. So much so that it has the arrogance to impose upon us strictures and rules and regulations that we are not even supposed to challenge. Those are perfect scenarios for Christians to prove that Jesus is Lord. Would you agree with that? We get to find out whether or not he's the same Lord to us as he was to them. Because you remember the rulers at Jerusalem in Acts 5 said, you can't preach in this man's name. Peter said, we are going to preach in his name. You can do what you want to with us, but we're going to preach. And just add, you know, add a glorious uh, sort of addendum. They locked Peter up twice. And the angels came and opened the gates and let Peter out and say, go on back to preaching, brother. Your authority comes from God. Y'all remember that? Peter wouldn't even be here if these things are not happening. This is the same thing with Paul and them. They tried to lock Paul down, as you know. But what did God say to Paul? Say, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. All this is going to turn as a testimony for me. And a lot of believers have gone through things over these last couple of years in the same like manner. You agree with that. Verse 43. To him gave all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Isn't that the gospel? The forgiveness of sins? Now look at this. So sit right there for a second. Look at this. What is Peter doing? He's doing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? And, and I came to you not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, right? In order that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That makes some sense, right? All right. So I, I, I love the way Paul uses the language in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 5. He's saying, what I am doing is simply being a vehicle by which God can work. And when God works, no one has to compel you or propel you to believe, you'll know it for yourself. Right. And really, that's how faith works. Now, this is the this is where we challenge the church around the sphere and realm of faith. No human being has the authority 
to demand that you believe or do anything to make you believe. No human being has the right to manipulate you into trusting Jesus. Did that make some sense? No human being, no pastor, no, no, no cudgeling. You don't come up here, follow, repeat after me. You never see that in the book of Acts. You never see, come here, say the sinner's prayer. You never see it. You never see it. That is a gross transgression against the sincere work of the spirit who alone has the right to convince of sin and to confirm of Jesus in the solitary uh, soul singular space of a man's heart. No one has the right to manipulate you in that way. Here's the reason why. Because if we manipulate you and bring you to Jesus, we can both save you and damn you. Did you hear me? If I can save you, I can damn you. And this is where people get caught up in the Kafka traps of of religion. Because you feel now like the pastor or the man of God or the woman of God was the reason you got saved. And now if they look at you cross-eyed, you feel like you're going to lose your salvation. Well, you are because it wasn't God's, it was man's. That comes home, doesn't it? And this is, if you're really a true believer... And, and God saved you in spite of that foolishness. He has to deliver you from that kind of ministry. And you come to discover, oh, my salvation's of God, not of man. Right. And that's very liberating. So I want you to notice what's getting ready to happen here. Peter is not going to lay down some kind of formula of salvation. He is simply preaching the gospel. And something happens. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them, which what? Heard the gospel. Heard the gospel. We know the content. It was Christ and him crucified. Peter is saying the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, right? 2, 2. I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and Christ and him crucified. And that The construction there to know nothing among you means common with you. The only thing I want to know common with you is that we are all centered in a revelation of God's glory in Christ. That has to be the common vision, the common narrative, the common koinea of the people of God. Right. And that's a beautiful thing, because what Paul was simply saying is, I just want to know if you know the one I know. That's all I want to know. I'm here to help you know him like I know him so we can have what is called a common fellowship. Again, this is going to be an analogy I draw out tomorrow in marriage. Because two people have to have a common narrative. How can two walk together? See, your narratives have to be common at certain levels. And so it is with God. And so this is what the gospel does. It brings us into a koinea, a fellowship with him. This is what John meant when he says, and truly our fellowship, not mine, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ, right? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, a powerful reality. Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. Look at verse 45. This is really powerful. And they of the circumcision which believed were what? So now you see that God has now furnished a demonstrative evidence of the presence of the spirit of God working in the life of Gentiles and Jews are observing it with their eyes. They're seeing a powerful influence in their life. 
Now, this, this, this testimony is critical because they are, they are Jews who say they believe. That means they're witnesses. Ostensibly, they saw the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, didn't they? Ostensibly, they saw the Holy Spirit poured out in Pentecost. We don't see another sense of pouring out of the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 8. When we're dealing with um, um, the, the brothers, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's Acts chapter 8, I believe. No, we, yeah, that's Acts chapter 8. We don't see a pouring out. Even though the Ethiopian eunuch is saved, there's no pouring out. The Holy Ghost is there. In other words, this is what I meant about it not being normative. There's not a pouring out every five minutes. This next strategic outpouring is on the Gentiles. Remember, to the Jew first, then to the So the outpouring occurs here. See this outpouring that occurs here? It will occur only one more time in the book of Acts. It's not happening every day. It's not happening every day. But I love this because this this makes the point that Paul is is referring to. Now watch it. And they of the circumcision which believe were astonished. And as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also, as it happened in Acts chapter 2, was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. See it? Do you guys see that? Now look at verse 46. For they had heard them speak with what? And do what? So here these Jews who experienced that same glossolalia in Acts chapter 2, thinking that that was specifically and exclusively for them. A handful of them follow Peter in Peter's counterintuitive assignment to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is a Gentile ruler for the Roman Empire. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on those Gentiles there. And immediately Peter's words come to all these Jews mind. God is no respecter of persons. Do you see it? God is no respecter of persons. And the beauty of our study for me, you guys, is that What we're doing here is affirming what Scripture says about the demonstration of the spirit and power. Are we not? We're simply affirming it. We're not getting into any doctrinal debates. We're simply laying out. That's what the scriptures say. Correct. And I can give you a few more. I don't want to. I just want to show you here. It'll happen again one more time in Acts chapter 19. Not as vivid and powerful, but clear enough for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, verse 47. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have what? Which have what? In the same way we did. See it? Now, I love this because one of the things we have argued, and I'm not going to stay here long, and this is the problem with our churches, is that we try to control the mechanisms by which God operates. And if you read your Bible carefully, God demolishes any assertion that you can control him in the mechanisms of salvation. Like you got God, you can't make God heal somebody. I don't care who you are. You can't make God heal somebody. You can't make God open somebody's eyes. You can't make God say you can't make God do anything. You can you can we can act like the Lord is ready, 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 ready. You hear all of that old kind of emotional rhetoric, right? Well, no, that's you revving up your engine. That's not God revving up his engines. 
And we came in carnal and we go out carnal and we could have, have had a great musical time, emotions and tears and all that. And the Holy Spirit didn't work at all. It's important for us to know that we can't hog tie God and make him do anything that we want him to do. Um, Peter's preaching and the Holy Ghost comes down on them. They're already saved, aren't they? Are they saved? Right. Even before baptism. So, you know, the order is you need to be baptized to get the Holy Ghost. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. Did that make some sense, saints? Right. This is why you need a Bible, because your Bible will help demolish these kind of inflexible standards that churches like to put on people because they become rules in people's churches that are a kind of quasi tyrannical or what we call fascist system. Right. Like any believer can be out anywhere with anyone on any part of the planet and the Holy Ghost can use the preaching of any believer anywhere on any part of the planet and save that person right there with the same kind of vivid, powerful expression and manifestation of revelation of Jesus in their heart. Is that true? Right. Whether they get baptized or not. See it. Right. So there are three categories that I, we generally establish with that. The first one is that these are called sign gifts. Y'all got that? Sign gifts. Sign gifts are not normative. Sign gifts are not normative. This doesn't happen every time church service comes along. The other gift is what we call salvation gifts. Salvation gifts. Now, the salvation gifts is when people actually get converted. This is what happened in Acts chapter two, when they said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Peter said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, right? Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The, the verdict of the Holy Spirit when he convicts the heart is to call men and women to believe that Jesus is Lord. The Bible is clear. It's by faith that we are saved through grace, right? That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a work. So faith is the evidence of our salvation. Grace is the grounds of that faith by which we become believers. If you and I don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in trouble, are we not? Right. So when we talk about salvation gifts, we're talking about the gift of salvation. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. That's the gift of salvation. Now, we say that because sign gifts are not uh, axiomatically saving gifts. Just because a person experiences a sign miracle doesn't mean that they are themselves saved. It means God is present. It means God is working. There can be people who get saved in the community of a sign gift manifestation, but it doesn't mean everybody's saved. How do we know? Matthew chapter seven. I think it's around verse 13 or so. Uh, Matthew seven, uh, verse. Mm, look at verse 22. I don't think it's going to be there, but it might. Yeah, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not what? Prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils. That's that's good, isn't it? We're preaching. We're casting out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful 
works. These are Simeon's. And in your name done many wonderful works. So notice we can, we can write off, they can be preachers. They can be so-called faith healers. You know, they make a lot of money. The faith healers make a lot of money. And then they can be miracle workers, right? These are the folks that you got to, you know, every one of your faith healing services, you got folks in wheelchairs and crutches, wheelchairs and crutches, wheelchairs. And, y'all know that we've been there forever. I don't even talk about it. It's so foolish these days. What we know is none of that constitutes a guarantee of salvation. Notice what Jesus just said. Verse 23. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So here they are engaged in church work, doing these signs that we're talking about. And yet they're not themselves saved. That puts a monkey wrench in the whole matter, doesn't it? Right. One more verse. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Um, this is where I want to give you a warning. In second Thessalonians chapter two, this is the warning passage, because this is the same construction that is used for demonstration of the spirit. And God warns that this would happen. Second Thessalonians 2, 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. That is the ultimate coming. But for Christians, we we always hope in the Lord showing up whenever we gather. Right. This in the teaching. Open our eyes, open our heart. Move us, Lord. Expand us, grow us whenever we gather together unto him. Verse two. That you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. This verse has been misused throughout the whole of church history because what happens with Christians is frequently when our society is going through the kind of upheavals that we're going through now, and we are, we're not even in the we are not even in the more critical stages of world tribulation. They are coming. Things will get worse. I don't say that because I'm a narcissist for, for bad events, but the trajectory of what's happening in our world globally is a massive indicator of a complete fracture at the foundation of our whole sociological framework as a society. We are unhinged in our world. And our rulers know this too. Our rulers know that we are in a bad place. They know that. Um, We've been here before. And whenever we get to these kind of crises, krenos, thalipses, period, we are often dealing with the four horsemen of the apocalypse at a magnified level. War, famine, that's economic upheavals, and, 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 and significant loss of, uh, of the stability of our economic systems, which is where we are. Pestilence, that is the idea of sicknesses and diseases emerging and spreading everywhere, which is where we are. And then death, which is where we are. Some of us who are keeping up with all of the charts and all of the data and all of the um, 
scales of, of demise. These are the records that the insurance companies um, maintain around the percentage rate of increase of all-cause mortality or death on the part of human beings. This is some of the best-kept secret in our media right now as to how many people are dying around the world. This is some of the best-kept hidden stuff. It's so bad today that when people of any notoriety get sick and go in the hospital, no longer is their issue disclosed. There's a kind of pulling of the curtains around it and no one gets to know at all what happened to them because they don't want implications drawn out to something that just recently happened to somewhere around 5 billion people on the planet. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Now, the people that live in the homes of these poor loved ones who get sick and are either permanently paralyzed or permanently wounded, they know what went on. This is what we call collective consciousness. They know that an event occurred, and after that event, things happened. They know that no matter how much the government and the military shrouds it, this is happening everywhere around the world and countries are warning about it. Way too much stuff is going on that's not good. We're supposed to talk about this because the sooner we talk about it, the sooner we can find a remedy to it. But our governments don't want to be culpable for, for what's happening, which is a lot of death around our world. And, and this, this is going to have some problems too because not only are we dealing with an economy that has collapsed, But we're dealing with now a workforce that is not available to keep working. Your economy only works as the workforce continues to be part of that cycle. Does that make sense? So you're going to be looking up and see a whole nother paradigm shift around language that's going to be speaking to a lowering of the level of lifestyle all around the world because we're not able to balance the books in terms of our sophisticated economic structures in our world. We're getting ready to experience something of what they have already been talking called a reset. And and people don't want to see it, but it's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. So these are the kind of times where often opportunistic, uh, unhinged, free spirits like to take advantage of people, like they've got this, this false prophet named Khan uh, what a name. It's K-A-H-N, but what a name. Con. He's on, he been on the, he'd been on the website for like decades conning people. Do y'all know who I'm talking about? How many of you guys know who I'm talking about? Con, he's a Jewish cat. Anyhow, K-A-H-Y-H-N. You know who I'm talking about. He's he been lying for decades, taking advantage of these crisis periods because Christians are vulnerable at this time. And they want a sign. They want, a, they want secret insights as to what's going on. <clears throat> and he's more than willing to give you secret insights. It's just going to cost you $20. <clears throat> and him and others do it all the time. And it's remarkable because he did it right during the election and lied about the coming of Christ then. Him and Hagee both lied. And they're still up there popping out lies. Because People, particularly Christians, forget every week that they've been lied to. And this just completely demoralizes society. If the church doesn't have a prophetic voice, if it doesn't have a priestly voice, if it doesn't have an apologetic voice, if it doesn't have an evangelical voice, the church is no good. If we're not prophetic, if we're not apologetic, explaining how the world works, 
if we're not priestly, if we're not engaged in the reconciling ministry, catching men and women who are on the psychological fringes of suicide and many other pathologies that crazy life can take you into. If we're not engaged in that evangelical work of pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh, what good is the church? Jesus says it's good for nothing, but like salt without savor. It needs to be just thrown out because we've engaged in all of the trichanery for decades upon decades. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, we've had the biggest positions in the world. Christianity has had the biggest television stations, the biggest news stations. We, we can pipe all around the world our, our antics and all of our gimmicks and schemes. And, and people today are almost inoculated against it. Would you agree with that? Because we've seen it so much for decades upon decades upon decades. The Christian church needs to be born again. Right. It needs to be born again. It needs to be born again. And until it's born again, it won't play any kind of role in stopping the tsunami that's coming. It won't play any kind of role. And people won't be looking to it. And the sad thing about that is it's going to open them up to the vacuum that I'm getting ready to read to you now. Here it is. Verse three says. Let no man deceive you by any means. That's a great warning, isn't it? Given where we are today. Is that right? That's a great warning. For that day shall not come except there first come a what? This is what we call the apostasy. It's the condition of our churches now. Our churches around the world are in this condition. Departing from the faith, abandoning their call, abandoning the prophetic word, abandoning the evangelical word, abandoning the apologetic word, abandoning the priestly word. The church is not confident in God nor in Christ, is not willing to do what it used to do years and years ago. Be on TV, be in the White House talking to the presidents. That's what a prophetic ministry is designed to do. The prophet speaks to the kings and tell the kings what God's counsel is. We're not there anymore. We're silent as a world. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And then that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Who are we talking about? the Antichrist system. Now look at the next verse, because this is the verse that I want to show you that there is a parody of what Jesus does that he himself does in these vacuous times where, where destabilization has led to chaos and crisis as we do. So he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. I assert to you that is where you are in terms of global governance. Your global government is acting like God. I'm just going to put that out there to you. They have the answer for the future. That answer for the future is artificial intelligence. It is the structure that is plopped on top of us right now, ready to descend on us like the Holy Ghost. I'm just letting you know when it becomes everywhere obvious, then you'll know you heard it here. I went to... uh, I went to a certain marketplace today to pick up some food. And I intentionally use cash because I haven't found anywhere in the Constitution where the government has the right to hold all my money 
and give it to me when they want to. Now, we've been trained to let them keep every dime of our money. And we want, when we want a little bit of it, we'll go to the bank or go to the ATM. Am I telling the truth? But we've been trained like slaves not to see every dime of ours that we work for. And it goes into their banks. Now, the money that goes into their banks that we've worked for, they use it in the stock market. And they create all kinds of witty inventions that we disagree with and print books that we are uh, abhorred by and engage policies that we totally disagree with. It's the, all that's our money. Have you ever heard the government ever once acknowledge we're spending your money? They'll talk like they have their own bank account, their own money, right? We're going to spend a billion on this, a billion on that. We're going to spend five billion on this, four billion on that. They're spending your money. So what I do every now and then is I'd say, well, let me just see if my money's still in the bank. And so I'll go and I'll ask for an absorbent amount of money and they'll go, well, Mr. Gistin, um, what are you going to do with this money? What you mean what I'm going to do with this money? This is my money to do whatever I want to do with it. Well, I, 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 we're just wondering. Well, stop wondering. Give me my, give me my money. Well, stop wondering. Give me my money. I do this because what I know is we have been dislodged from that which is rightfully ours, which has never, ever been a system like that in the world. There's never been a system in the world where you worked, earned a living and didn't get every dime of your money at time for pay. Did y'all get that? I need to stop because, you know, I can take you into the rabbit hole. I can take you into the rabbit hole. But what makes it uncomfortable is that we have been trained to let them almost operate with every precious thing we have. Now they're just going to walk right on up and take your children from you and teach them all of these abominable things in school and dare you to say anything about it. Am I making some sense? This is your government. This is the Antichrist system way at the top who feels like it has trained you enough to make you say, call me daddy or call me mama. I run the show around here. Y'all see what I'm saying? I run the show and we're so comfortable with them having almost every fundamental precious identity marker that constitutes the essence of who we are. They got all of our information. All of it. They've got all of our money. So I'm, I'm over at the marketplace. I want me some, uh, some chicken. I want some fried chicken. Some, uh, some African-American brothers cook some really good fried chicken. I don't eat much of it because, you know, it, it can get to you. But I wanted some fried chicken. I wanted to take it, I wanted to, take it to my mama because it's Mother's Day. So I'm going to go do my mama a favor. I go over into all of these different food squares that are there. And guess what they're saying? We don't take cash. Man, I wanted to start. I just wanted to just start something. Just start something. What? Because I can see it coming. Can you see it coming? And this is called nudging you into nudging. This is a World Health Organization term. This is part of advertisement, nudging you into slavery. 
nudging you into slavery. So, sure, a lot of places. So a lot of places is optional, as you know. And wherever it's optional, I always say cash, cash, because I want to exercise the autonomous right that I have to hold my money and give my money where I want to give my money. Did that make some sense? Right. In a minute, you won't hardly find any business institution that's captivated, captivated by big business using cash. They will be given incentives not to use cash. Did that make some sense? And they will take that incentive because businesses need to prosper. So they'll they'll have the little sign, no cash. And, and I thought about this. I'm going to let us go here in a moment. I thought about this. I said, wow, here we are. Losing our freedoms. I'm like, wow, here we are losing our freedom. Now, our freedom is not lost. It's not lost. But freedom is asking you how much you want, how much work you want to put in to have a relationship with me. Right. Did that make some sense? So freedom is not lost, but what freedom says is just. Now, what you want to do, bro? Now, you can be free. You don't have to slide the card or push the card in or stick your hand out because now it's the chips under the hand. I've already taught you all that. Y'all do know that, but I hope you're not slow. It's already there. It's already there. Just slide your hand under. Or you can be free. You know what that means? You can choose not to actually participate in those models. Now, what that's going to mean is you're going to have to actually go out of your way to find people of like mind as yourself. Right. People that's willing to sell you food and goods with either the court or cash. But that becomes a whole new society of people whose consciousness are broad enough to understand the value of freedom. Am I making some sense? Now, that's what we're going to have to end up ultimately doing. I hope you understand that people are going to have to wake up a seat looking at what happened the last two years. A lot of us don't have a whole lot of hope for a lot of people. Because people get used to convenience. I'm going to just keep sliding my card and hope that money is there. But what about when it's not? Because I can tell you, they're going to test you. You're going to slide your car one time and it's going to say unapproved. And you go, I got money in the bank. And you're going you're to try to call to get some kind of, you know, remediation. And then a bot is going to answer the phone. I'm helping you. I'm going to be talking about this on Sunday because I love God's word because you know what God's word does? God's word warns us. These things will happen. Can you imagine? This is why as we're talking about marriage and, and tomorrow, if you, you know, everybody can, if that can make it out, make it out. Because what marriage is supposed to be for God <clears throat> is that fundamental institution that if everything else fails, the marriage has all of the infrastructure of living independent from the system itself. I'm say it again. I'm going to close this in prayer. God started with a family. He didn't start with a government. He did not start with a government. 
In fact, we didn't get a government till chapter nine, did we? And that was after God wiped out the whole world. <laughs> That's how serious God was about governments not running your life. It's just tribes, just families. Can you imagine a man and a woman with an understanding of how the world works who also knows their right in God and employs every power of their privilege and walk with God to create their own self-sustaining system of subsistence? Can you imagine that? Now, you can't if you were born and raised in the concrete jungle. But if you were born and raised in the South on a farm, then you know that the common folk, they had everything they needed. They just simply have to continue to maintain it and cultivate it. They weren't going to the supermarket every other day to buy food. Am I making some sense? They were used to milking cows and milking goats and wringing the heads of those chickens and turkeys. I'm talking about all my ethnic brothers. I love their food. I told my wife, she's hanging out with some, some Filipino sisters right now. I said, you better bring me something home. You better bring me something. I'm going I'm to I'm preach myself into uh, starvation. I want you to bring me some of that good, authentic, genuine Filipino food home. All right, so... But we know, we know how to go the long route of digging holes in the ground and creating pits and putting the food in the pit and covering it with leaves. All cultures do that. Best food in the world. Right? But when you grow up in the concrete jungle, you lose all of those skill sets. Can you imagine getting used to hardly talking to no one but artificial intelligence, AI signals. Getting used to it, where the system separates you and doesn't allow you to have the kind of gregarious gathering that we're doing because they know when you get five or six or seven, ten people who love freedom together, they're going to dig a hole in the ground and find a way out. Y'all got that? That's what human beings are going to do when it gets tough. So they got to stop that. See what I'm saying? Keep you high. Keep you laughing. Keep you entertained. This is called the distraction of the devil. Until the unholy ghost comes down and everything is changed. And one day you look up and you have the central banking digital credit system fully in place. You don't get to get your money unless you follow the ESG rules. Can you imagine that? It's right around the corner. He exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he as God pretending to be God sits in the temple of God doing what? Showing himself that he is God. That's the same word demonstration. So at a certain point, what you're getting ready to see happen is the manifestation of the Antichrist system emerging with so phenomenal a technological wonder 
that the vast majority of the world is going to simply say, who can make war with the beast? He's going to be so powerfully overwhelming and convincing as a system of technology across the world that no one really will want to push up against it. Y'all get what I'm saying? I know that's kind of scary, huh? It's kind of scary. And we would rather it not be true, right? Pastor Jesse, man, I hope you're wrong. I hope I am too. I hope I, hope I am too. Probably not. Probably not. Because you know what people have always had to do anytime, anywhere in the world to preserve their freedom? Fight. Fight. And in order to fight, you got to be prepared. So some of y'all getting prepared now because y'all come to grace. It's just true because I'm listening to my pastor, brethren, and they acting like they acting like everything just fine. I'm like, dude, you crazy. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the class tonight. Help us to be able to always affirm your presence, your power, your demonstrative work. Help us to also distinguish between that which is saving and that which, which is merely sign uh, gifts that affirm your presence in our world. Help us to also see the lying signs and wonder that the Antichrist system will and is already doing to deceive us into thinking that we're going to be okay. Help the people of God be ready to deal with the difficult times that you have warned us about so we can do exploits and preach the gospel and call men and women to repentance at the highest levels of government all the way down to the ground. Protect us now as we go our way. Get us home safely. Give us good rest tonight and prepare us for our class tomorrow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.